Well, let's turn to the book of Job again this evening. I'll start, though, by reading in James, as we have in the past. James 5:11. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask that you'd help us now as we look again into this book of Job. Speak to our hearts and use it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been examining this amazing book of Job. I say it's amazing because it, it's full of such profound questions and profound answers in some cases to those questions. Even from a literary standpoint, it's an amazing book. The poet Tennyson said, Job is the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. Thomas Carlyle said, it was one of the grandest things ever written. There is nothing written, I think, equal of equal literary merit. And Philip Schaff, a Christian historian, church historian, said, the book of Job rises like a pyramid in the history of literature without a predecessor and without a rival. So even from a literary standpoint, this is an amazing book. But that's not why we want to spend our time with it this evening or why God's included it in the Bible. It's there for our edification to teach us, and we want to look at the spiritual things that God wants to communicate, not just the literary quality of the book. So may God help us to do that here. Thus far, we've seen that Job was a righteous man. God calls him that. It wasn't just uh, Job saying that or somebody else. God actually says he was blameless. Eh, a righteous man who went through extreme trials, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He was undone by the situations that he was put in. He lost almost everything that people look to as blessings in this life. As we come to the, or came to the third chapter, we see a broken man covered with boils from head to foot, sitting in the ashes, scrape, scraping himself with a piece of pottery and basically wishing he was dead. We've tried to go just systematically through the book thus far. I don't know how how long we'll be able to do that. It is a long book, 20 or 42 chapters, but we'll, we'll do it for a while yet. I want to do that again this evening. But we uh, came to the first of his friends, Eliphaz, uh, and what he had to say to him after he heard Job making these complaints and lamentations about wishing he had never been born. Eliphaz has some things to say to him 
Uh, he says from his own experience and from dreams that he's had, he had some things he wanted to let Job know. But the basic thing that he communicated was, Job, this has got to be your fault. Uh, nobody goes through this kind of trial and tribulation, this many bad things, unless they've been bad themselves. So he was saying that this is some kind of punishment that God is inflicting upon you for your sin. Now, in the midst of many true things that Eliphaz had to say about God and about God's ways, we saw that that was a basic theological error being presented. And also we saw that it was presented in a number of times, a number of ways that showed forth some pride, some arrogance, and certainly some presumption coming from this one who had said that he was coming to sympathize and to be a comforter to Job. So faulty theology and some sin on Eliphaz's part made it so that these things that he had to say were not any comfort to Job. What we want to do then is go on from there and see Job's response to what Eliphaz had to say. Uh, now, I thought it might be good to just briefly give you an overview of how this whole book of Job is arranged. So here's just a kind of a, an outline of this book that I think will help us as we go through it just to, to get the big picture. Of course, we've already looked at the first two chapters which give the background of the story. The, the setting on earth and the setting in heaven, you might say, what was going on. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, Job's friends arrive to comfort him. They stay there and don't say anything for seven days. In that, after that seven-day period, in chapter 3, we see Job speaking out and saying, basically, I wish... I had not been born. I wish I had not been born. Then begins a series of conversations between Job and his friends. And this takes all the way uh, from chapter 4 to chapter 31. So a big section of the book. 4 to 31 is a conversation between Job and these three friends who showed up there that first week of his, his uh, sorrow and, and uh, suffering. Basically, the conversation has to do with why is this happening to Job. Now, the conversations take place in three cycles, and this is, this is something to kind of help you see what's going on. Three cycles. In each of these cycles, you have Eliphaz speaking, Job responding, Bildad speaking and Job responding, and then Zophar speaking and Job responding. That's one cycle. So... One of the friends speaks, Job's respond. Another speaks, Job responds. Another speaks, Job responds. That's one cycle. And that goes on three times in that same order. Each, each of these friends speaks and Job's, Job responds. Now, that happens three times except for the third cycle, the third time the last man, Zophar, doesn't speak. 
But another young man, Elihu, speaks. He hadn't shown up before. He'd been there. He said, I've been listening to you guys all along, but we weren't aware of it. But he was there listening to all this. So this fourth person, instead of Zophar speaking, uh, Elihu speaks up, and he has a long presentation. It starts at chapter 32 and goes to 37. So he has something to say, and there's no response from Job to that because God speaks to Job right after that. So you have from chapters 38 to 42, God speaking to Job, Job repenting, Job's friends are rebuked, God restores Job and uh, blesses his latter days. That's all from 38 to 42. So that's kind of an outline of, of the book. One thing I might add, if you turn to the uh, chapter 3, you'll notice that the print, if your Bible's like mine, which I think it'll be somewhat like this, the print changes from the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. And you'll see that it stays that way all the way till the end of Job when you get to 42, chapter 7, or 40, chapter 42 and verse 7. Then it goes back to the regular way of uh, arrangement there of the print. Now, why is that? Well, that's because that whole section is, po- is poetry. It's not the kind of poetry that we're used to with rhyming, a rhyme scheme, but, it, but it, there's a definite rhythm to the way the words were presented. That's why, for instance, uh, these quotes earlier where, where they talked about this being the greatest poem ever written, it's because that whole section of, of this book is written in poetic style. Well, I bring that up just to say that although this is a true historical account, a large portion of it is given in poetic form. So interpreting the book must allow for some freedom in the way we understand the use of words because the author was putting the account into a beautiful poetic style. It's not a straightforward narrative like uh, much of the Bible is. So just just to keep that in mind uh, as we analyze this book. So let's go back to the book of Job and look at Job's response to Eliphaz. Remember Eliphaz basically has said you've got, you've got to be some kind of a pretty bad sinner. Job for this to happen. Job begins to respond in chapter 6. And again, what I'm going to try to do here is just uh, read a section and make a few comments on it, read the next section and make a few comments. This won't be very extensive, but maybe it'll help us to get more of a feel for what's going on. I hope it will. So, chapter 6, verse 1, Then Job answered, Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my iniquity. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash, 
for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So what Job's saying, he said, all right, you say I'm a, I'm a sinner. But does my sin really warrant what's happening to me? He said, if, if, if the, the vexation, these things that have come upon me were weighed in balances, they, they weigh more than the, the sand of the sea. Now let me ask this. Does Job say that he's without iniquity? You see it there? He doesn't say that, does he? He said, oh, that my vexation was actually weighed and laid in a balance together with my iniquity. He doesn't, he doesn't say he's sinless. He just says, what my character is like compared to what's happening to me uh, is disproportional. This is, not, this is not God punishing me for the way I've been. That's what he's saying. But nevertheless, he says, the arrows of the Almighty are within me. They're poison my spirit drinks. So he's, he, he's acknowledging that God is dealing with him, but it's not the way his friend Eliphaz has said. It's not a punishment for his sins. It couldn't be, according to Job's view of what's happening. Let me ask one other question here from this first section. Does he recognize he has said some things in his anguish that went a little too far? You see it? He says, he says that. Therefore, because of what's come upon me, all this sorrow, all this suffering, therefore my words have been rash. He admits that maybe I've said some things that I shouldn't have said in the midst of my affliction. Therefore, my words have been rash. Okay. Then he has uh, a few things to say in somewhat poetic form here. Does the wild donkey bray over its grass, or does the oxen low over its fodder? Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Is there, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? So my soul refuses to touch them, they are like loathsome food to me. And what I think he's saying here is that, you know, the donkey or the oxen isn't going to be complaining over some good food that's given to it. But I'm complaining. Yes, I'm complaining. You know why? Because everything that's coming my way is bad. It's, it's, it's something that I should complain about is basically what he's saying here. Because all that's coming my way is loathsome to me. Oh, that my request might come to pass and that God would grant my longing. What is that? Would that God were willing to crush me. He's already brought me down so low in my life that I'm sitting here wishing I was dead. I wish he'd just go ahead. Basically, he says, I wish he'd go ahead and finish it off. That he would loose his hand and cut me off. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. In other words, he says, all this has come upon me, but I'm, I'm telling the truth when I say this is not because of some great sin that I've done. I've not denied the words of the Holy One in my life or in what I'm saying. 
Then he says this, What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Is it that my help is not within me, and that deliverance is driven far is driven from me? What's he saying? He's saying, what do you expect me to do? I'm not a stone. I'm not made of bronze. These, these things that have come upon me are, are trials to the utmost. And the fact that I'm speaking out and wishing I was dead, he says, that's, you ought to expect that from what I'm in. In other words, mainly because of the pain. You know, I don't know how you deal with pain, but I don't deal with it very well. And I haven't had very much. But here was a man in terrible, terrible pain for days and days and days. And he's basically saying, what am I supposed to be like, a stone that doesn't feel anything? Verse 14. And I think this is a key verse in understanding how his friends had wronged him. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, what should there be for me from you, my friends? Well, there should be kindness. There should be sympathy. Just like Charles was speaking on on Sunday. You should weep with those that weep. Well, here's a man in a situation that was weeping, 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 weeping so much that he wished he was dead, and his friends come along and say, well, it's your fault. You're a sinful man. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friends, lest he forsake the fear of the Lord. I think that some of the things that you see, Job Job says even more extreme things later on in this book. And uh, I think... You can say that some of that was actually brought on by the way his friends treated him. What they were doing was actually making things worse and actually unknowingly doing the work of the devil, accusing him. And I don't think he would have said some of the things that he said, some of the more extreme straight statements that we see later, if his friends had been more sensitive. They were... They made, they made some very insensitive comments to him, which further devastated this already broken man. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi. Now here he gives another little picture to us of how he views this situation. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, which are torbid because of ice, and into which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Their path, the paths of their course wind along. They go up into nothing and perish. The caravans of Tima looked. The travelers of Seba hoped for them. They were disappointed, for they tr- had trusted. They came there, and they were confounded. Indeed, you have now become such... You see a terror and are afraid. He's, what he's, what's he saying? He's saying, just like these wadis, which are like uh, streams, uh, seasonal streams, they, uh, 
in certain part of this uh, year you'd come and they'd be full of water and another part of the year they'd just be a dry riverbed. And why was that? Well, because in the winter, uh, when winter's passed, the snow melts, there's lots of water running down, but later on in the summer, when you really need them, when you want some water and you go there, there's nothing there. And he's saying, that's what you have become to me. Friends, you would think, would have something to give you, something helpful, something to say that would be refreshing when they come to you. But when, when, when they came, when these friends came to, to Job, Job was disappointed. There wasn't anything there. Uh, people that came to these dried streams were disappointed in that they thought that they could trust in finding some some help there, some water there. And Job says, that's just what you are like to me. Hoping to find refreshment when you came, I found nothing. I've been disappointed. And goes on, verse 22, Have I said, give me something, or offer a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the hand of the adversary, or redeem me from the hand of the tyrants? Have I asked you anything? I didn't even ask you to come. You just came, and I'm not asking anything from you, except just a basic kindness. Listen and be sensitive. When he goes on, teach me, and I will be silent, and show me how I've erred. Show me. You say I'm sinful. Tell me, what have I done? What is it that you're looking at? How painful are honest words, but what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words? When the words of one in despair belong to the wind, what's he saying? Well, he's saying, you're not going to find any great sin in my life if you look back. I, I just don't believe you will. Go ahead and look. Show me where I've been wrong. But now if you say, if you're going to make a big deal about these things that I've just said, you should realize that those were words of one in despair, and they belong to the wind. This is not, this is not a, a mark of what my life is really like, what, I've, what, I, what you've heard me say here in my, in my misery and despair. And I think that's a really important verse for us to get a hold of and remember the words of one in despair belong to the wind. You shouldn't make that the criteria of how you view that person. Because that's really not what their life represents. It wasn't what Job's life represented. The fact that he'd said some of these things that he admits himself were rash, rash statements. The words of one in despair belong to the wind. You would even cast lots for orphans and barter over your friend. In other words, he's saying, you guys are pretty ruthless if that's the way you're going to treat me. You're, you're like a guy that would barter over an orphan uh, or cast lots for orphan and barter over your friend. Now, please look at me and see if I lie to your face. Desist now. Let there be no injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern calamity? So I, I, 
I'm enough with things. I know what's going on, and this is this is bad. What's happening to me? And you guys just need to stop. <laughs> just stop with all this interrogation and and uh, viewing me as such a great sinner. Desist. Well, that's chapter six. And like I said, we're just kind of skimming over this, but I think maybe it's it's uh, worth trying to at least get a brief idea of what Job's saying. Well, he goes on. Basically, he said, I'm telling you the truth, and you guys need to, you know, lay off. Chapter 7, and I'll just, we'll just read through this again and just make a few comments. Is not man forced to labor on the earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired man, as a slave who pants for shade, and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages. So I'm allotted months of vanity, and nights of trouble are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I'm continually tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. This is a terrible picture of what he was going through. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. This beginning part here, he's talking about the laborer and and, uh, uh, the hired man and the slave. Basically, he's saying even those people who are, you know, going through difficulties, at least they're looking forward to a reward and some respite from what's going on in their life. And I have nothing to look forward to. There's no reward. There's no respite for me. It just keeps going on like this, night and day, night and day. I'm tossing, turning, uh, flesh clothed with worms. Verse 7, Remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. Thine eyes will be on me, but I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Basically, I think he's saying, I'm dying. Can't you see that? And I'm not going to be around here much longer. And once I'm gone, I'm gone. So in light of that, he turns from speaking to his friends, so-called friends, and he begins to speak to God. And here's the words of a despairing man who thought, at least, that he was dying. He says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or the sea monster that thou, he's speaking to God now, that thou dost set a guard over me. Now, when you think of God guarding us, you think he's protecting us, but that's not what Job's saying. Job is it's more like the picture of Job in a prison, and he's being watched over by God in this prison. Thou dost set a guard over me. If I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then thou dost frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. 
again, you see this idea here of saying, I'd, I'd rather just die. I can't even sleep at night. If I try, if I can get to sleep in the midst of my pain, then I have all these frightening dreams and visions. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to God, saying, leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that thou dost magnify him, and that thou art concerned about him, that thou dost examine him every day, and try him every moment? Wilt thou never turn thy gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? And in other words, are you just going to keep doing this to me until I just die? Just keep afflicting me like this? Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as thy target, so that I am a, bur a burden to myself? Why then dost thou not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and thou wilt seek me, but I will not be. In other words, he's saying I'm going to I'm going to die, and it looks like God's just going to keep bringing on these afflictions. Again, the words of one in terrible agony, basically saying, God, just, just let up. Let me alone. Don't keep doing this to me. He felt like he was a target that God was just hitting over and over again with affliction. Even when he tries to sleep, he can't. He says that God has terrified him with these dreams and visions. Well, I think maybe that is a good place to turn to some of these questions that were on the handout that uh, we gave out last time. Because they... This idea of God terrifying with dreams is kind of fits into a couple of the questions. <clears throat> with question two and five. Question two, considering the fact that Satan was the agent in bringing terrible adversity to Job, is Job correct in saying what he does in Job 1.21? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job 2.10 should we accept good from the Lord and not adversity? Was his adversity from God or Satan or both? And then I put in there, consider second causes. Uh, I don't know if you knew what I meant by that or not, but that's what we're going to talk about here a little bit. When I talk about second causes, I'm talking about, and this is a definition from Grudem, the properties and actions of created things that bring about events in this world. The properties and actions of created things that bring about events in this world. God's the first cause. God's the ultimate cause. But there are second causes. We make real choices. So he's talking about the actions of created things, which would include Satan. I would contend, and you may not see this quite the same, but I would contend that Satan is a major second cause that Job did not know of. 
that Job did not factor in to what was happening to him. Now, we know that because um, it tells us that in the first two chapters, that Satan was very much involved in what was happening here to Job. But Job and his friends never bring that up throughout the whole discussion, anything related to Satan at all. So, let's just take this thing that we just read. Here's Job in his bed, trying to sleep. And he says, My bed, if I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then thou dost frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So the question is, is that God? He says it's God doing that. Is that God or Satan or both? What do you think? You think Satan's involved in that at all? Okay, that's we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> Satan, I think, when we talk about uh, terrifying visions and frightening dreams, we're probably, especially in Job's situation, dealing with something that involves some demonic activity. Now, God's in control of that. But we do need to recognize what Job was not recognizing here, the reality of second causes. As Christians, especially in light of what we know in the New Testament, we realize that Satan is involved in much of what happens in our lives here on this earth. We do not believe in any kind of dualism that there's some big warfare between God and Satan as if, you know, it's uncertain what's going to happen. That's not at all what we believe. Satan is under God. But nevertheless, what he does is real. And it has a real effect in this world. God decrees to allow sin... But he does not sin, God does not sin, nor cause men to sin, nor cause Satan to sin. If we have a view of sovereignty, and there's no question these men definitely believe that God was sovereign, both Job's friends and Job, Job himself. But if we have a view of sovereignty that says God makes us sin, or keeps us from standing against sin or blames God for sin, it's a wrong view of sovereignty. So I think that many things that are talked about in this section between, uh, talked about between Job and his friends where Satan is not even mentioned or any demonic type things have to do with Satan's work the second cause what you might cause call the immediate cause of job's affliction was satan satan was an was and is an evil being that job and his friends had little knowledge of it's interesting that in the whole old testament 
Satan is only mentioned twice outside of the book of Job. Satan's only mentioned twice. And that's those those places where he's mentioned are after the time that I believe Job lived. Was Job aware of evil powers in this world? I think the answer is yes. He knew about Adam and what happened there with Adam and Eve. Let's turn to uh, Job 31:33. This is Job speaking, and we're just going to kind of jump right into the middle of a, a discourse here. But he says, "Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom?" So he was very aware of Adam and what happened there. And if you're aware of that, then you're aware that there was a serpent there that tempted Adam. And there was a sea monster that cultures of that time associated with evil and the work, what we would say, the work of Satan. And that sea monster was named Leviathan, and we're going to talk about that more in the future. But the point is that Job had nothing like our understanding of the work of Satan. He was not aware of the principalities and powers that were against him. He was not aware of the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that were bringing so much of this upon him. This is another example, I think, of what of how we have to understand the book of Job which has to do with this thing of progressive revelation. We know much more than Job knew concerning the work of Satan and demonic powers and forces. We can say Satan meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good. Job could not say that because he didn't understand it. What I'm saying is that by the grace of God, we know something that Job had no way of knowing in this point in redemptive history. I wanted to read a quote from Wayne Grudem related to this thing of second causes and how God is in control of evil, but he does not do evil. And when we think of God's sovereign use of evil for his good purposes, we should never imagine that God commits evil or approves of evil as far as morally approving of it or fails to hate, judge, or be angered by it. So Wayne Grudem says it this way, However we understand understand God's relationship to evil, we must never come to a point where we think that we are not responsible for evil that we do or that God takes pleasure in evil or is to be blamed for it. Such a conclusion is clearly contrary to Scripture. And what happens as this book of Job goes on is that he gets to a place where he's blaming God for what 
actually it's Satan being done by Satan, which he doesn't realize that, but he's blaming God and finding fault with God. How do I know that that's the case? Because God says it's the case. When God begins to speak with him, he calls Job a fault finder. And specifically, he's talking about finding fault with God. He's blaming God. So his view of sovereignty was a distorted view in some sense. And partly because he didn't have the information that we do related to second causes, especially this major second cause of Satan's work in the world. Um, Maybe we could just fast forward to one place just to show you this. Job chapter 9, verse 22. Well, let's start with verse 20. Again, he's speaking to God here. So, Job 9:20. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say. Now, what he's saying there is God's treating me as if I'm guilty and I'm not guilty. And he says it doesn't matter if I say it or not because this is just, it's not going to change things, what I'm saying. And he's almost, he's viewing God's way of dealing with him as almost arbitrary. It doesn't matter what I do, in other words, because this is what happens to me. And then he says this. He, he's talking about God, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Now these are terrible things to say about God. He mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the, into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of the judges. And then he asks this question. If it is not he then who is it? He says, if God isn't doing all this, then who's doing it? Well, that's just one example of some of the extreme things that that Job says in the midst of his despair and affliction. Well, we'll take up there next time These are rash statements. And these are things that he will have to repent of. And he does. Next time what we'll do is uh, begin here with his next friend, Bildad, and see what he has to say and look at Job's response to this comforter's lack of comfort in his life. What I what I'm trying to do here partly is to bring out some things 
that a superficial reading of Job would not see, you wouldn't get. Because this book goes really deep. And we want to try to get some of the uh, deeper things that God is revealing through this book. So that's that's my uh, desire and hope that we can do that by the grace of God. Anyone... Uh, Well, uh, another question, we won't, we won't even deal with it tonight, but number five is very similar along the lines of what we've been talking about. Is God the only one who has power over nature, sickness, and disease? That's quite a question. We know that God has ultimate power over those things, but as we read this book, it's... It certainly seems that in certain situations we can say that Satan has his hand in that storm or that uh, tragedy that came upon, at least uh, here in Job's situation. I don't think we should always say that every storm that comes along is something Satan stirred up. But nevertheless, we see that he was given some allowance there, some some uh, place to interact with nature in bringing about some of the things that came upon Job's family and his property. Well... We'll stop there.